Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Now, what happens when you can't actually wait to see your own doctor or your provider and you have what you think is an emergency? Well, today we're going to hear a little bit about what are some of the unique things you may want to bring with you should you need to go to an emergency room who might be the people that you'll see there, and what sorts of conditions really require an emergency evaluation. So I'm joined here in the studio with Dr. Jay Ishida from Kaiser Permanente. He's been working in the emergency room there for almost a decade and a half. Coming from here locally and doing a little stint of a school in Washington and then also in western Massachusetts, and now you're back home here to help take care of our folks right here on Oahu. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about the emergency room. That's kind of your home. That's your home base. And that's a place that people may need to go to if they have certain medical conditions. I know there's a lot of things people may not need to go to the ER for. And that's why there's a lot of great walk-in clinics or urgent cares or other locations that people can get care. In addition to their primary care provider always should be the first choice if possible. But what are some of the things that truly require emergency room care? Well, the emergency room is open 24-7, as we all know. Um, Anytime you have severe breathing, trouble breathing, respiratory issues, if you're having chest pain, if you're feeling faint, or if you have significant, significant trauma, bleeding, hemorrhage, all those are reasons to present yourself to the emergency room for emergent evaluation. We always encourage people to seek care if they're in doubt. So if you're not sure, just get it checked out. That's a general rule of thumb that can be pretty safe. When in doubt, check it out. I guess so, yeah. And you mentioned that if you have chest pain. So for somebody who thinks they might be having a heart attack, and you know this, this happens far too often, they often say, well, you know, I had this chest pain, and it kind of woke me up, and it was really uncomfortable. So I decided to drink some water and go back to bed. And then 12 or 24 hours later, they'll come in and say, well, it's still kind of there. Now, in a lot of situations, it's nothing serious. But every once in a while, it really is a sign of a heart attack. Should somebody who truly thinks they're having a heart attack drive themselves to the ER? That would not be advisable. Um, You can have... uh worsening of a cardiac event while you're driving incapacitate you and you're going to end up wrecking your car, hurting yourself or somebody else, and um, just making things a lot more worse for yourself and and the general public. So if you are concerned you may be having a significant life-threatening emergency, don't drive yourself. Definitely have, uh, you know, activate 911, you know, that's... And there's some things that People, you know, that some of the emergency medical technicians and the other personnel in the ambulance can do on site, and they work in coordination with you. Yes, that's correct. Um, You know, there are times when uh, the paramedics will treat and evaluate, and sometimes they will make recommendations to either have a family member drive them via private vehicle. Sometimes they'll, a lot of times they'll transport them to the emergency room. Sometimes they'll contact the emergency room and ask for a physician's advice. Um, But that's correct. They do coordinate with us, um, especially in times when there's, you know, maybe the patient may not need to come via EMS by the ambulance. 
So it really just depends on the presentation. And if somebody is truly having a problem, whether it be a heart attack or the other condition that often requires emergency evaluation, is if you think you're having a stroke, what would be the common signs or symptoms that someone might experience that would suggest that that could be going on? Well, first of all, strokes are time sensitive. And so this is one of those conditions where if you are concerned that you're having a stroke, you shouldn't go back to sleep and go back, go come in the morning. You like hope to. it goes away because yes. it might not go away. Yes. Um, now, the symptoms, uh, some of the symptoms of stroke would be slurred speech, drooping of the face, weakness on one side of the body in one arm or one leg or the right arm and right leg. Um, and so if you're having symptoms that you are concerned might be a stroke, um, you need to get to the emergency room immediately. If it is confirmed to be a stroke, there are medications that are time-sensitive in administration. So uh, put another way, we have only certain many hours to implement the treatment for a stroke if it is a stroke. And so if you're concerned you're having a stroke, you know, don't, you know, think it's going to go away and just to put it off. Um, you really should get it checked out, especially with stroke-like symptoms. And there are some risk factors for stroke that would make somebody more likely to have that. When you evaluate someone who presents with maybe those the one-sided arm or leg weakness, what are some of the risk factors that you ask someone about that might make you think there's a greater likelihood it's something serious? So if you are someone who suffers from diabetes, um, hypertension, high cholesterol, if you're a smoker, um, the older we get, the higher risk we are. So if you've had strokes or heart attack in the past, those are all some of the risk factors that the more of those you have, um, the higher it puts you at risk for strokes and heart attacks. Now, if somebody's having pain on their arm and both sides, let's just say that they say, I had this tingly sensation, it was going down both arms, that's less likely to be a stroke if it's involving both sides of their body. That's correct. Um, the uh, strokes usually present on one side of the body. So if you were to draw a line right down the middle of your body, um, usually it affects only one side, only the right side or only the left side. Now, you can have emergent conditions that do involve other, you know, both sides, but regarding stroke specifically, it usually doesn't involve both sides. Um, yeah. So if you think you're having a stroke, then that's, again, another one of those situations where you don't drive yourself. Correct, correct. It can worsen significantly, incapacitate you. You may not be able to see, move your arm, and you might crash your car and hurt somebody else or yourself. And you don't necessarily want to wake up someone else and say, I think I'm having a stroke. Get in traffic and drive me. That's correct. Because that's why when we all hear the sirens as we're driving, we make room. We want them to be able to get somewhere quickly. So even if it's late at night and you think, hey, I can get them there really quickly, again, there's something the the paramedics and the emergency medicine, uh, the emergency technicians in the ambulance can actually provide service and they can do things yes. to help you immediately. Yes. Another um service that the EMTs provide is they will coordinate which medical facility can provide the appropriate treatment if you are having a stroke. Now, um, certain facilities have different capacities, and so you don't want to drive your loved one to a facility and realize, oh, you need to be transferred somewhere else for the for, for a stroke since it's time sensitive in the treatment. So a lot of times the paramedics will uh, come to a scene, evaluate the patient, deem the patient is 
probably having a stroke. And then based on their location on the island and the facilities around them, they'll triage them to the closest appropriate facility that can take care of a stroke at the time. So it's similar to trauma. I mean, certain emergency rooms are trauma certified and they handle those situations. Other ones do not. So you'd want to make sure if you have a condition, you don't have to be the decider. If you contact EMS and you have 911 come to your house, even though you might want to go to the hospital where your friend works or your doctor works, if the condition you have requires treatment at another facility, be aware of the fact that they may take you somewhere else, and there's a good medical reason for that. That is absolutely correct. All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Jay Ishida from Kaiser Permanente. He's an emergency room physician, and when we come back, we're going to talk some more about if you are in the ER or if you're about to head there, what are some of the things you might want to bring with you if you have a chance? We will be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Jay Ishida. He has almost a decade and a half of experience as an emergency room physician. And we're talking today about what sort of conditions might make someone go to the emergency room, in particular when they shouldn't really drive themselves because it may not be safe. Now, there are some situations where somebody could present themselves. Maybe they have some type of a cut or something that is deep enough that it may require sutures or stitching, or they might have potentially broken a bone. They, depending on which bone it is, they or someone they love could drive them to an emergency room. Do you see a lot of those situations, just kind of the it's urgent because it's bleeding or because I think I broke it kind of scenarios? Uh, yes, uh, those are very common. And a lot of those scenarios, it's safe for uh, you or a loved one to, um, you know, drive yourself um, to the emergency room. I mean, presuming it's not your foot that you Correct. drive with, your that right you fractured, foot. maybe yeah. not that one, yeah. but okay. Yeah. I mean, in the sense, you know, common sense, if it's your right foot or if you, it's, uh, you know, if you have a stick shift car and you have a clutch or something to make that. But in general, um, general, you know, lacerations, small lacerations as the bleeding is controlled with pressure. Um, sometimes mild stomach aches, you know, can be, be driven. Um, uh, but when in doubt, you know, have a friend or call, call 911. So let's talk about what happens when you're about to go to the emergency room. There's a couple of things that you might have in your house or that you might have with you that would be really helpful when you present to the emergency room. So if you're about to dash out of the house because you're taking grandma to the emergency room, you think something serious is going on, what sorts of things might you want to bring with you? Um, in general, it would be a good idea to have in on your phone or a Folded up, uh, listed on your in your wallet or purse at all times. Um, a list of medications that you're on, uh, including the medication name and the dosage. Um, you know, or just grab all the pills, bring them with. That's a great idea too. If you have, I've had patients bring a plastic bag full of bottles. That's great. That if you don't have, because a lot of times patients have uh, medication changers that are quite frequent, and so they just bring the whole bag or the whole box of bottles. That works too. Yeah. 
So bring yeah. your pills because if you're not quite sure what you're on or what they're for, physically bringing them, uh, doctors can figure out why you're taking certain things. It also lists who prescribed it. That's a very good point too. And in case we need to contact the physician uh, with further questions, it helps us to you know deduce you know what conditions you might have if you if that's a cardiologist, you know we can tell so you have cardiac disorders. Uh, other things to bring would be know your allergies um, or your loved one's allergies. That can also be in, you know, these smartphones nowadays. If you update a list of allergies uh, for you or if you're a caregiver for someone, make sure you know their allergies. Um, and, uh, you know, if they've had surgeries in the past, uh, you know, it would be very helpful, especially certain types of um, if you've had your appendix out or your gallbladder out, um, if you had, you know, surgeries involving the brain or spinal cord, um, especially if you're a caregiver for a loved one who can't speak or is you know, impaired, uh, has some impairment and can't recall for themselves, it's a good idea to um, keep a list of their, you know, current medical problems and past medical problems. That's always helpful, I would think, because, you know, then you know within a short period of time what sort of medical conditions you might be dealing with. You mentioned earlier about risk factors. So there are certain conditions which put you at risk for problems, high blood pressure, diabetes, high cholesterol, smoking history, family history. These things might make you more likely to have a heart attack or a stroke. And if you know those things immediately, that can really help the doctor to know exactly what other testing you might need or what other sorts of treatments that might be necessary for your condition. Yes, that's absolutely correct. Um, and, you know, one, something else that comes to mind, one of my uh, friends had an abnormal EKG, and they just took a picture of it on their phone and saved it. Uh, because in the emergency room, you know, if we don't have previous records on you particularly, and we see an EKG that's grossly abnormal, um, you don't if, know if it started yesterday or 10 years ago. Yes. Yeah, so if you had a picture of an EKG, oh, I had this last year, and it's exactly the same, that makes um, us as emergency personnel feel less worried that something new and worse is going on. Um, otherwise, we have to assume it is new and worse, and you'll, you know, we may have to do tests. Uh, you may have to stay in the hospital, et cetera. So a lot of times, it, having, if you've had abnormal uh, EKG, for example, it might be a good idea to keep that. Uh, my, one of my, my family members have is folded up in his, in his, in his wallet. Um, but with the, day of, with the age of smartphones, you can probably have it on your phone. You could. You could, absolutely. And I know that some people actually, I remember a few years ago, they were offering like a little laminated mini EKG that was the size of like a credit card. And I just thought, that's kind of interesting. But uh, it really does help because when you're comparing to something you know has previously been there. Or the other thing I often try and make note of is, you know, I'll often tell patients, and I've started really doing this more proactively, you have a heart murmur. I hear it. It's nothing serious. So if you ever get asked, do you know you have a murmur? Remember, even if you don't remember anything else, we've talked about this and we know about it. Because otherwise... You might not know. And then some doctor in an emergency room says, how long have you had that murmur? And you're like, I don't know. I have a murmur. And then there's another workup that might occur that we've probably already done that's or taken care of. That's absolutely correct. That's absolutely correct. Yes. So heart issues, whether it be that funny electrical thing. Some people tell me I have a bundle branch block. It doesn't matter if they know what that means because I do. So then when I look at EKGs, I kind of have an idea what I'm looking for. Or if they know they have a heart murmur or they know they have some particular abnormality that can help to remind us. Now, there's a couple of other things, and I often think these days, that we really have to work on having people have the opportunity 
opportunity to think about what they want done before they have an emergency condition. So we've talked about before on this show, and hopefully people have the opportunity to talk to their primary care provider about life-sustaining treatment if they want it or not. There's a particular form called a pulsed. It's sometimes bright green, uh, but sometimes could be just, you know, regular white paper. And it's where somebody has the opportunity to discuss with their family members what they might want done in case of an emergency if they're found at home not breathing or without a pulse or not doing well. So these are forms that I think can be helpful or if you're bringing a loved one to the emergency room and you know they have an advanced directive, if you have an opportunity to keep that close by, to bring that with, that can really give you some instructions on what that particular individual wants in case of this emergency situation. That is a that's a very great point you brought up, and it's very important, um, along with your medication list, your allergies, if your family member, your loved one that you're caring for has a post, um, usually it's on the refrigerator door or someplace very, you know, um, very accessible, um, and if you know you're going to be going to the emergency room, it would be a very good idea to try and bring that with you, um, because a lot of times... If you have that post filled out with your primary care physician, it communicates to the emergency staff what your loved one has predetermined um, they want done and what they don't want done. You know, my, my grandma was 96 and she didn't want certain things done. She didn't want CPR or this. And we we respect that. But the post helps us, helps us confirm that. If we don't have the post and you're not breathing or your heart's not going, we do CPR and we resuscitate. Now, in my grandma's case, she didn't want that. So... Uh, I would hate to perform uh, treatments or uh, interventions on someone who didn't want that. But without that post, we don't know what your family member wanted or didn't want. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Jay Ishida. He is an emergency room physician at Kaiser Permanente. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about what are some common things that he sees in the emergency room? And are there some things that we can all do to keep ourselves healthy? Maybe so we don't have to meet him in person in an emergency situation. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I'm here in the studio with Dr. Jay Ishida. He's an emergency room physician at Kaiser Permanente, and he's been there almost a decade and a half. I like to say that because it just it's 14 years and a few days, so it's so close to 15 years. We're just going to let you own that. Probably feels like it's that long, given the number of hours you spend there. Now, earlier in the show, we were talking a little bit about things people can bring with them, you know, bring your medications, physically bring the bottles or bring a list of them, know a little bit about you or your loved one's family history. Because sometimes, you know, I'll see a patient in the office and I'll say, huh, what's this scar from? And they'll go, oh, yeah, I had my gallbladder out or I had my appendix out. These days, a lot of procedures are done laparoscopically. And so you won't necessarily see scars. So you might start ordering scans thinking someone has an appendix problem or has something else going on without 
even knowing that they've had that organ removed. And that probably happens more in an emergency capacity if you don't have those records. Because sometimes people don't think about, oh, yeah, 10 years ago I had the following thing done. So it's it's very important to know what surgeries you've had. But you alluded to the fact that often in the emergency room, outside records are not easily accessible. And there have been several efforts in Hawaii with the health information exchange and then also with some of the medical the medical information systems we use, the electronic medical record. Some of them communicate with one another. When you see somebody in the Kaiser emergency room that doesn't necessarily have their regular care provided there, do you have access to records from other facilities? Are there ways that you can easily look those up? So currently, uh, the Kaiser uses Epic and uh, Queens Medical Center and um, Hawaii Pacific Health. Um, we all use um, a similar electronic medical record system. So we are able to interface um, general records. Now, if your primary care doctor has an office and has a stack of paper files in his or her office, we can't see that. But for example, if you were, uh, if you present to Queens and you had been hospitalized at Kaiser, they can see, you know, what CAT scan you had or what surgery you might have had. Um, uh, I'm not familiar with all of the other hospitals on the island. If we have to go quote unquote old school and fax and do the paperwork to get the records, we can. It just takes a lot longer and sometimes it can delay care for you. Um, so currently, currently we're moving in the right direction. Uh, one day I envision we may have a system that, you know, is pretty interactive in terms of being able to commit with all of the hospitals, um, but it has improved care significantly. Now, for example, the EKGs that we talked about before, we can't see the images yet, but we can see a sort of description um, and images a lot better to see. Um, but if we see uh, now, sometimes we can see a report, um, which is pretty good, better than we had before. Um, so the uh, interfaces between the um, hospitals, at least the, the, the three systems that I mentioned, um, are a step in the right direction, I think. Yeah, I think back to when I first started about 20 years ago when I came here and started the job I still have now at Straub Medical Center. And we did paper charts. And you would get like this huge stack and you might get the latest volume. You wouldn't necessarily get the three charts before that. So so th things have definitely evolved and they've gone towards the electronic route, which can be good, can be bad. But I think for for looking at stuff in a quick fashion, it is a nice way to organize things. And you're right. There are a lot of there's a lot of similarities between the Queen's medical system, the Kaiser Permanente medical system, the Hawaii Pacific Health system in using this medical record called EPIC, which has allowed us to be able to look at things done at other medical centers. And in fact, there's quite a few medical centers on the mainland that also use it. So there are other portals for which we can see information. And if somebody's traveling, they may be able to have that available through their record here as well. So there are definitely some some steps in the right direction. There's also other electronic medical record systems. Cerner is one that is used in the VA system and some other locations. And so there's there's not necessarily the same translation or connection, but it's definitely, like you said, it's it's moving in the right direction. I honestly hope there's a day when patients own their own records. So if there's a way that they can be the one to be in charge of looking at it, knowing about it, and bringing that, you know, that could be sort of a future wish. That's a great idea. That's That would be optimi optimal, actually. Yeah. Or even just storing it on the cloud. I mean, people mm -hmm. often ask, why do doctors still use 
fax machines. It's kind of an archaic technology. <laughs> but the easy answer is because it can't be hacked. That's true. Yeah. It's it's very uh, you you can't really hack a fax machine. So when you talk about trying to make sure data is sent securely, I mean presumably you have a fax machine that is in a secure location, but it's not electronically going to have some sort of uh, virus or anything cause a problem with it. That's why we still use fax machines. That's correct. It doesn't necessarily mean that the fax machine is in a location that anyone else can't pick up the paper, but that's generally why we do it because it allows for that to be sent seamlessly. That being said, it does take a while. And if you're in the emergency room at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, nobody's going to be faxing over things urgently immediately unless you really have someone on the receiving end available to to ask for know exactly what they want and somebody else on the other end sending it, which is not necessarily the easiest way to go about things. That's absolutely correct. Yes, yes, yes. The other thing that I think would be uh, interesting is if, if patients, even in the cloud, had the ability to write things in their own record. There are certain medical record systems now that are encouraging people to actually put in their own history so that that can be reviewed even before they come in. So that actually adds another layer of, of transparency, but also of, of medical communication. Well, that would be a great idea. Um, you can Somebody s- to write your notes for you? Sign me up, right? <laughs> well, since you're in a diary and you can, you know... Um, log what your symptoms were at that time. So you, you as a patient don't think, when, what, when did I start having the pain? Was it three or four days ago? You can just look back and say, oh, it was Thursday I started having this. And that's also really helpful is to be able to document the historical information. So if somebody were to to have knowledge of that and have written down notes, I always find it. I have a couple of patients who tell me, okay, don't be scared. I put everything on a spreadsheet. And I'm actually really excited about that because that really helps to put things in a timeline that's pretty helpful for me. Wow. I've never had that happen. Before. Probably like not that. an emergency <laughs> <Yes>. situation. <laughs> Nobody says, quick, print my spreadsheet. That's awesome. You know, there's a little bit more time that's in great. my world to have that have that opportunity. But it's it's not something you would see in your world. Now, what are some other things that people, when somebody is seen in the emergency room and they are told they can leave, what are some of the things that are some good tips that they should keep in mind? Well, the the most important thing is um, to remember what your doctor or nurse told you about what to watch out for, um, for which to come back to the ER. It's just like when you get on the airplane, we get the advices to where the oxygen tanks and the life vests are, and you hope you never have to use them, but you need to know where they are. So I always tell my patients, you know, this is just like the same. You know, if you start getting pain in this part of your body or these symptoms X, Y, Z, and I try to write that down for my patients too, but it's um, it's really important to remember what to watch out for for you to come back. Also, um, you get instructions about who to call and what time frame to follow up with your doctor, a cardiologist, a stomach doctor. Um, And so those two things you want to really kind of take home, the two take-home messages from your visit, what to look out for and who to call and when for your next follow-up. And I think that's the other advantage of typing. Is that my handwriting? Uh, Honestly, I would not blame anybody who said I can't read it. Sometimes I can't read what I wrote myself. So it's often good. You know, a lot of times people can type out those instructions, give you some papers, and they often list your medications. So good to go home and kind of compare that to what bottles you have at home. Make sure you're on the right stuff. That's absolutely correct, too. Yes, yes. Double check your – because we may make medication changes, and you want to make sure you um, implement that to your daily routine. 
And then see if you can get, you know, particularly if you go to another medical center, maybe not where your electronic record is available to your primary care provider, make sure that you have a copy of that record if possible, <clears throat> or even just your labs or your scans or whatever testing was done. See if you can get a hard copy, just have it printed when you leave. Yes, so yes. then follow up might be a little easier. Yes, yes, yes. Well, it certainly sounds like we've learned a lot about what happens in the ER. I want to thank you for sharing your expertise with us here today on The Body Show. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. I just hope I never wind up in your ER, not because you're not good at what you do, but because I hope I don't have an emergency condition anytime soon. I want to thank Dr. Jay Ishida from Kaiser Permanente for coming on today to educate us about the do's and don'ts when you think about going to the emergency room. If you'd like to hear the show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. You can also find us on the HPR app. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. And we'll see you next week when we talk more about ways to stay healthy and well right here on The Body Show. See you then. Woo!